This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Thomas Frank about his new book, The People Know. It is an illuminating book, Tom, the best one I've read about the sound and fury of America's 2020 presidential election campaign. You ask what the voters, the candidates, the media pollsters and pundits think they have in mind when they wonder whether democracy is dead or alive. What do they mean by the words populist and anti-populist, civil and uncivil liberty? You approach our contemporary confusion by reviewing the history of populism. Where does the term come from? And how does it come to pass that was what that what was once a positive is now a negative? Let me let me start by saying it's really good to hear your voice again. Haven't seen yeah. you for a while thanks to this yeah. pandemic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's a it's a funny thing when you you know, when I was younger I studied history. I wanted to be a historian. And I, uh, the first thing I studied was, was this movement called populism that got its start in my home state in Kansas back in the 1890s. And I grew fascinated uh, by it. These are the people who invented the word populism. And it was a kind of a, a left-wing movement, a movement of farmers. Uh, they wanted a lot of reforms that are today, the reforms that are, that are pretty common sense but uh, back then were considered extremely radical. And, but anyhow, populism was a, was a positive word, as you just pointed out. When I studied it, uh, populism was a, that was a good thing. That was a thing you wanted to be. Today, you pick up a newspaper and it means completely the opposite. It means uh, racist authoritarian. Uh, and there's all of this uh, anti-populist literature, all of this literature now being issued by academics, uh, the mainstream media, et cetera, uh, talking about using the word populist in this way, you know, using it to mean someone like Marine Le Pen or Jair Bolsonaro or Donald Trump. Uh, and there is this, you know, this, this, this understanding that the uh, when people denounce populism, when, when our pundits denounce populism, that the, the we the people are out of control, that we are that there's this threat of mob rule that hangs over the world, and they, and it's up to them, the sort of scholars and uh, pundits, to uh, to to stamp it down. And I call this the uh, democracy scare. You know, that's what we're in right now. We're in a period that I call the democracy scare because. Populism, properly understood, as you understand it and explain it in this book, is really democracy. It's what Thomas Paine meant by democracy. It's what Whitman meant by democracy. Yes, and Carl Carl Sandburg. It's the and, and yeah, Carl Sandburg. It is it is the root understanding of democracy in America. Yeah, that the it's that there's a kind of genius that inheres in, in ordinary people. Yes. And that that's something that by the way Lewis was once I mean common sense in this country. I mean not all that long ago. I I mean I I I'm kind of a sucker for uh, sort of pop culture of the 1930s. You know, I listen to this big band music and stuff, but if you just watch any Frank Capra movie, 
or basically any movie that came out in that in that period this sensibility this populist sensibility uh uh you you just you get it instantly this this sort of classic american faith in in ordinary people and that is democracy and that really is who we are or i should say who we were because i don't know who has that, who has that faith anymore it certainly isn't our it certainly isn't the the the, the traditional bearers of populism by which i mean political liberals you know it's not them uh, they're the ones who are out there denouncing populism all the time you know you open up your yeah. new york times and there it is it's it's in your face almost every day yeah so what i decided to do for this book was to do to to research the history of that attitude of of people who hate populism you know because the 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 question that you started with how did a word that was positive become so negative how did that happen? I mean, and that's a really interesting story. But once you start researching that story, you know, this, this story of this, of this break, this discontinuity of this word's um, meaning getting flipped. Once you start researching that, you realize that there's a broader continuity there. And that's what, uh, that's sort of the story that I told in this book because people have hated populism since the beginning. I well, mean, yes. I, yeah. I don't I want mean, to go into, I'm not going to go into Alexander Hamilton here, but, uh, cause, uh, no. my story, my story starts in, in 1891, but you can go all the way back if you want. Oh, to yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, Adams hates it. Adams yep. talks about democracy as murderous, uh, mob. Yeah. And, and the, uh, and, and the, United States Army Handbook in 1928 defines democracy as a mindless mob. Oh my God! Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, none of the founders had, you know, had had any faith in democracy at all. I mean, I mean the, the word doesn't appear in the Constitution. Yeah, that's right. That's it, right. Uh, it doesn't appear in the declaration. Populism was a mass movement, as as I mentioned before, it was a mass movement of farmers, and it they became a. It was like the what today we would call the farmers' union. It was a sort of a similar idea that if if farmers and you know today you know you drive across Kansas and farms are these enormous things, these corporate enterprises almost. But back in the eighteen nineties, they were all small farms. They were family farms, and farmers were doing very badly for a number of different reasons. Uh, well, similar reasons to why they're doing badly today. You had these very powerful monopolies uh, that that you know that stood between them and their market, and. Farmers knew this. They figured it out. And there was an organization called the Farmers Alliance that started signing them up by the millions to do something about this. And it was one of the, uh, you know, it, it was an explosive mass movement. It gained millions of members in a very short amount of time. And they decided at some point to go into politics. They couldn't get what they wanted by demanding it as a movement or by, uh, uh, what, what do you call it, direct action. They tried to set up uh, – you know, their own exchanges and stuff like that. And it didn't really work out. And so they decided they had to go into politics and they formed the last great third party movement uh, in the U.S. The, the, I mean, the last one that actually elected, you know, uh, governors, senators, members of Congress, mayors, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we've had third party movements since then, you know, like Ross Perot and Ralph Nader, but it's always been a single guy running for president. Uh, this was the last time 
that someone tried to 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 actually set up a, a whole third party and challenge the two uh the other two parties and th- they did a pretty good job for about 5 years anyhow one day in 1891 they they coined this term they had called themselves the people's party when they first exploded on the scene in the year 1890 they called themselves the people's party and they were they were casting about looking for a word to describe their supporters and they came up with this word populist and it was uh, they were writing it we I, I looked this story up it was it was actually really fun doing the research for this they were a, a bunch of these guys were riding on a train between kansas city and topeka uh talking with some of their friends about what you know what what word they should use and one of them knew some latin and said well you know the word populus populus uh, is the Latin for the people. So let's, let's just make it from that, take it from that. And they made, they made the word up. And I was, I was actually surprised, Lewis, when I went back and was reading all of this anti-populist literature today. And by the way, there's a whole pedagogy now. We'll, we'll talk about this on and off. I, I hope for the next hour, but there's a whole pedagogy now of, they call it global populism studies. And I read a whole lot of the literature of this, of this, uh, pedagogy or discipline or whatever you want to call it. None of them seem to know that this is where the word comes from. And yet it's not, it's not like a difficult thing to look up. It's not a hard thing to find out. You know, I, I, I placed a phone call to the Kansas State Archives and they had a whole file on it, all these clippings from newspapers from long ago. And, and, you know, and it was, uh, it was kind of a famous local story once upon a time, how the word was invented. <coughs> Anyhow, so the, like I said, populism was a, it was a reform party, you know, uh, this sort of, it, it was like an American labor party. The idea was to, to, to start a labor party here in the United States and the farmers were going to reach out to, uh, industrial workers. They were going to reach out to other reform minded groups in America and they were going to form this, this one big umbrella party for all the different reform groups in America. And that was populism. And they had a famous manifesto that they published in 1892. It was called the Omaha Platform. Uh, you can, it's easy to find on the, on the internet. And it's, it's a lot of fun to read. It, again, because so many of the reforms that they demanded, which were so considered so radical at the time, are just common sense today. First of all, the, the party embraced, it combined the, the, uh, black farmers of the South with the white farmers of the North. In in other words, it understood that the principal problem was economic, not, not, not race. Yeah, it it was, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It was transracial. Yes, it was, it was, it was transracial. The idea was to bring in people from working people from every different walk of life, every different ethnic background, uh, around their shared interests, which meant class interests. Although they, they, they wouldn't have said class interests. They would have said, you know, you're, you're farmers or whatever. But they, this is one of the things that made it so radical and made it so disturbing in, in the South. The South, of course, was a v- agricultural region then as now. And, uh, the, the populists said to, uh, uh, black farmers and, in, in 1891, 1892, blacks could still vote in most of the states of the South. And the populace made an appeal to them. And they said, you know, your, your class interests, uh, you know, as, as farmers, as, as, you know, these sort of t- tenant farmers are largely the same as the interests of these white tenant farmers. So if you two groups get together, uh, you can, you know, you can 
get stuff done on your behalf and make your lives better. And this was what made this so radical and so disturbing was that the ruling elite of the South, they, they used to be called Bourbon Democrats, the Bourbon Democrats ruled by um, via a doctrine that they called uh, white solidarity. The idea being that your racial interest as a white person was uh, – uh, was was more important than anything else was paramount to everything else and so white people had to stick together and they had to vote for the uh, bourbon democrats and the, you know the, the democratic party was the party of white supremacy in the south at that time and that's how they cemented their rule was this appeal to white solidarity and populism uh went struck right at the heart of that and said no in fact your class interest as a farmer is is it's much closer to the interests of, of black farmers than it is to the interests of these you know the people who own the banks and stuff like that. This was incredibly disruptive. Uh, that was and, the and that's the position, by the way, that Martin Luther King reaches late in the sixties. Yes, that's right. I didn't want to skip ahead to that. But no, no, yeah, I, I don't either. Right. But I mean, and he he, he okay. was he was he was uh, following in their uh, in their footsteps and 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 basically said so also, which is uh, one of the more uh, amazing uh, things that I discovered when I was writing this book that, that Martin Luther King gave a speech where he did a shout out to the original populist. By the way, I've since discovered, I discovered this after I finished the book and turned it in, Lewis, and I, and I feel kind of stupid about it. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about populism also. And I had real trouble finding the essay, but I finally found it. And yeah. he, and he said the same thing as King that this was uh, this episode in the 1890s where you had this, uh, 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 these white farmers uh, reaching out to black farmers was, uh, you know, unprecedented and had, he was writing in the 1920s and never happened again, uh, after that. And, you know, the uh, uh, you know it was this it was this very great moment, but it was unfortunately a very very brief moment because the uh, Bourbon Democrats in the South came down on populism like a ton of bricks. So they organized the party, but then they talk about the election of eighteen ninety six and yeah. how 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 does it come about that the populist party fuses or merges with the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party is. Uh, in 1896, runs under the banner of populism. And free silver. And yeah, free silver. And, fascinating and, and, episode. And, and yeah. not, not widely remembered anymore in this country, although at the time it seemed to be the most you know, consequential election ever. So what happened right. is populism is uh, the, 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 the third party is growing by leaps and bounds uh, in the early in the first half of the 1890s. And the country goes into this severe depression. I'm forgetting what panic it was that kicked it off. But the 1893. Country goes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what what was it? Do you remember what it specifically what who what bank failed or something? I don't even remember. I can't keep my panic straight anymore. <laughs> I, I think it had to do with the, the railroads. Yeah. That, anyhow, they're, they're, so the country goes into a deep depression. They called it at the time the Great Depression. And um, there's the you know, enormous strikes. You had the uh, Pullman strike in Chicago. You had the Homestead Steel strike. And you had a the first ever protest march on Washington that was organized and led by a populist, kind of an eccentric fellow called uh, Jacob Coxie. They called it Coxie's Army. Uh, he led a march of unemployed people on on Washington. And um, all of these things were going on. Populism looked like it was the coming movement. 
And then uh, 1896 is an election year. Uh, the Democratic Party gathers in its convention in Chicago and uh, uh, doesn't renominate Grover Cleveland, the sitting president who is a Democrat. He doesn't come to the convention. They won't have anything to do with him. Uh, and they uh, they declare themselves uh, against the opposed to the gold standard. The gold standard was widely uh, blamed for uh, you know the 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 bad you know for for the terrible things that were happening in the economy. And by the way, not incorrectly, the gold standard was a terrible system uh, that you know you can't you you can't have uh, uh, your money brace, based on gold when the economy is growing by leaps and bounds because there just isn't that enough gold in the world to to go around and it causes deflation. Uh, and they, they they had figured this out and they knew it. And so the Democratic Party meeting in their convention said we're against the gold standard. And then they nominated this unheard of person, William Jennings Bryan. 36 years old, one term member of, you know, congressman from Nebraska nominated this guy for president on the strength of a speech that he gives against the gold standard, the famous cross of gold speech. And um, the sort of eastern elite of this country erupted in a kind of hysteria. Uh, what I uh, again, a democracy scare. Uh, they, uh, you know, they, 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 they saw Brian as a kind of Robespierre. They thought this was a French revolution. They thought, you know, the, the, uh, anarchists were in the saddle. Well, this was what made it particularly alarming was that it was, it was the Democratic Party. It wasn't just the populists anymore. It looked like the Democratic Party had been conquered by populism because Brian used uh, a lot of populist style language and that sort of thing. And the populists then met in their convention about a month later and said well you know brian he doesn't he's not with us on on all of our issues you know they they had a whole range of of issues in addition to the gold standard you know they wanted to uh, uh nationalize the railroads they wanted votes for women they wanted uh you know to expropriate um land speculators all these sorts of things and brian wasn't you know wasn't doing any of that of course but he was with them on this one big issue of the currency. And so the populist party meeting in their convention, they got on board with it. And they said, we will, uh, we will, uh, fuse with the Democratic party. We're going to endorse Brian for president. You know, it's a gamble. They said, if he wins, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have some uh, strength in Washington. We'll get, have members of the cabinet or something like that. And it'll be, you know, it, it'll be, a, it'll be a good thing. And they got on board with him. And the the establishment of this country came together against the Democratic uh, and populist candidate in a way that uh, we've almost never seen before. Uh, you know, the, the the press of this country. And by the way, some of this, we, we of course, we do still see it happens all the time. But the press came together in an in a incredible display of unanimity uh denouncing william jennings bryan you know uh, uh mocking and deriding him and in, in really really vivid ways and we can uh go into some of the language there if you want it's it's a lot of it is really hilarious uh the they were of course uh united with the tycoons um the bankers the millionaires you know who controlled uh, the industry of the country at the time, uh, academics were on board, uh, in the anti-populist, uh, campaign, uh, society clergymen were on board denouncing Brian from the pulpits well, of the country. Same kind of shock and panic and hysteria that seizes the American, uh, upper class ruling class when, when, uh, Trump is, is, is elected. Yes. 
very much right. the same. I mean, it's, Trump is right. a, Trump is actually elected on on a pseudo populist uh, <laughs> program. I mean, he's he, he's talking the talk, but yeah. he's not walking the walk. But but the same kind of language with, with which they smear Brian, and they they do the same thing to with Trump. Trump. Yes, yeah. uh, and you, you've you've picked up on that. Not a lot of not a lot of people have. And this is not to say. So I kind of like William Jennings Bryan. He's a historic figure who never gets his due because he he. he we'll go into that in a minute. But I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump. Just so you know, I think Donald Trump is a fraud. Uh, and and uh, and I know you agree with me on this. Yeah, yeah, this I do. Is, but this it, is not to say that I that I think that 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 Donald Trump is a genuine populist. But the anti-populism, the reaction against him, is precisely the same as it was in 1896 yeah. against Brian. It's 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 uncanny when you go back into it and start looking at the details of it. Yeah. But anyhow, so here's here's poor William Jennings Bryan. Going around the country campaigning for president. And, you know, it's, it's, he's lucky that he was 36 years old because he had a lot of stamina. He had to uh, carry his own suitcases because he didn't have an entourage. <laughs> you know, his party couldn't, they couldn't afford anything because they, you know, they were, they were, they were, they had succeeded in antagonizing, you know, the wealth of America in this unprecedented way. I mean, the business community was entirely behind. Uh, the Republican candidate that year was William McKinley. And McKinley himself was kind of, as you know, was kind of a cipher. I mean, he didn't really uh, have a lot to say. He was a protectionist. He was known for writing a famous tariff uh, uh, bill. But the, his campaign manager was this, um, you know, was this guy called Mark Hanna. He was a tycoon from Cleveland, Ohio. And Hanna was a genius, was a, some kind of, was a political genius of a kind that we rarely see anymore. And Hanna went around to the great, uh, the, the headquarters of the great corporations in Manhattan, the sort of Fortune 500 of their day. And, uh, you know, went into the, uh, this is a famous story and I, I, I took it from a, uh, one of my, uh, all time favorite political books. It's called The Politicos by a, a guy called Matthew Josephson. It was a book written back in the 1930s and he describes this campaign so vividly. But anyhow, Mark Hanna, the uh, Republican manager went around to the great corporations and went into the office and said, open the books. And they did. And he said, your profits were, you know, X million dollars last year. We're taking 1% of that. The Republican Party hereby demands, you know, 1% yeah, right. of your profits from last year. And, the, and the, the, the shocking thing is they paid. They wrote the check. These companies yeah. wrote the check. And as a result, McKinley had, uh, Probably the largest, uh, in, in, in per capita terms and in terms of the size of the economy and adjusted for inflation and all that, probably the, the largest campaign treasury that's ever been seen in this country, even bigger than Obama and Mitt Romney and, you know, Donald Trump. He puts all those people in the shade, outspent Brian 20 or 30 to one you know, unleashed this blizzard of pamphlets and, um, uh, traveling lecturers. They would follow Brian around from city to city. They had a squad of these guys. These Republican speakers would follow Brian around. He'd give a speech in, let's say, Des Moines, Iowa. They would show up the next day, and, you know, spread out over the city. And, and anyhow, they, they, uh, used every trick known to the 19th century mind to, uh, to put this guy down. Uh, and they, they were pretty much convinced that, that Brian represented the class war, that this was it. 
the class war was at hand and the uh, the upper class of this country came together in a kind of astonishing uh, unanimity uh, to put this guy down and they succeeded they beat him and that's the first uh, uh, uh sort of a real uh anti-populist episode that I focus on in the book because the word that they use to describe Brianism to describe what Brian stood for, by the way, which was all imaginary. It didn't have anything to do with what Brian actually meant, but they were like, you know, Brian is an anarchist. Brian is a, a repudiationist. Brian is for mob rule. Brian, you know, Brian yeah, wants to yeah. let people riot in the streets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the, the term they used to describe his program was populism. But the Republicans win the election. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, you know, a large scale defeat for Brian. Yeah. Over the course of the next 20 odd years, many of the populist proposals, fiat money, so on, income tax, yeah. get put into, into practice under the progressive Teddy Roosevelt and Wilson. Yes, and and also under Franklin Roosevelt. Yes, very much under Franklin. We, we want to get to Franklin Roosevelt because yeah. the Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal is is has got a lot of echoes of, of the populism. Yes, but I, I, there's there's one thing that's that, that's that's interesting that we skipped over, and that's the content of the the anti Brian campaign. And I looked into this, by the way, I don't think there's no other historian that I know of that has looked into this, um, you know, in detail. We all know er, historians love populism. They love to study it. They love to, to write about it. And there's dozens of books and articles that come out about it every year. But not many of them study the uh, campaign against populism. And once I started digging in this, it was absolutely fascinating, Lewis. And it always came down to the same um, image of the respectable versus the contemptible, or as we would say today, the deplorables. Uh, here's right. what I write. Quality and good taste were menaced by the riffraff for no reason greater than the supposed resentment of lower animals for higher ones. And right. that's, they, you know, there are all of these different uh, intellectuals and academics and, uh, you know, men of letters like John Hay, uh, William Graham Sumner, uh, you know, squared off against populism or Brianism and, uh, and denounced it in exactly these terms. You know, the populists are the, represent these, these, these farmers who are watching their way of life be destroyed. And, uh, and they say, you know, you're demanding that, the, you know, government doesn't exist to help you out. You know, government exists to, to protect property. It, it, it exists yeah. to protect people like us. Yeah. Uh, not, not that, not to help out people like you. Uh, yeah. and it's, uh, this is always what you see with anti-populism is this idea of the, uh, respectability quality versus the riffraff. Uh, versus democracy, right. you know, democracy right. is as you just said. What what was your quote from the the army manual from nineteen? Yeah, yeah, it, you know, it, it's mob it's mob rule, right? Yes, you know, exactly, yeah. exactly. No, but I mean, this is the same kind of uh, rhetoric that the New York Times and the New Yorker and the Atlantic and just the whole pundit uh, bureau brings against Trump. Yes. Yeah. This is this is uh, uh, Trump is a deplorable. Trump is Trump is exactly. You know, 
in exactly. bad taste, right? <laughs> well, that's tr- that's true. <laughs> he does have bad taste is incredibly poor. But yeah. uh, uh, but but here's something. That, this is this is my my summary of of the way they thought about populism in the 1890s. Give the plain people a say. And by some deep, irrational instinct, they will try to smash the social order and to topple the highly educated people who administer it. John Adams felt exactly the same way yes. ab- about what he called the rabble. And, 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 the, uh, and he attacked Paine, who had a democratic vision of, of, of a constitution. He called him, you know... A, a mongrel puppy, a, a uh, you know, <laughs> awesome. The, the, yeah. By the okay. way, that comes up again uh, in the in the 30s. There's this obsession with genetics that I did not know about. But before we get before we'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. One of the really fun things that I that I discovered when I was writing this book, Lewis, is that there's all of these fictional treatments of populism that nobody reads anymore. <laughs> you know, it's all this yeah. forgotten literature. Uh, who is uh, Hamlin Garland was the novelist actually wrote like, I think more than one novel about the populist movement, but the, the best one was by William Allen White, who was a newspaper man from Emporia, Kansas, hated populism. Interesting guy. I've written about him before uh, because he's the man who wrote the famous essay where he coined the phrase, what's the matter with Kansas, which I then used, you know, I sort of flipped the meaning on him. But he wrote a, uh, he wrote a novella about populism, which I did not know, uh, published, I think, in the year 1900. And I went back and found it. It wasn't hard to get a copy. And uh, he described it. Do you remember the French social theorist Gustave Le Bon? Oh, yes, I do. Wrote a book called The Crowd. And Gustave Le Bon was, uh, like all the people that you've been describing, hated democracy, uh, was uh, suspicious of democracy, and said that when people gather in crowds, they become subhuman. Well, William Allen White read this book. It came out in that same year, 1896, or it came out in English, I should say, in 1896. William Allen White read it. And applied it to populism and wrote this novella of populism where that's what it was. It was, uh, it was these, these spellbinding orators, you know, sort of hypnotizing, uh, these audiences of, of low class people, you know, farmers and riffraff and stuff like that. Yeah. And he says the result is you have this, this weird time in the 1890s where, uh, the bottom rail is on top and the world is turned is, is very briefly the world is turned upside down and they elect this, uh, this guy who's like a, a street corner, uh, troublemaker. They elect him governor of Kansas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in this novella. Anyhow, it's a, it's hilarious stuff. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, uh, and yeah, we see it again in our own time, but it's all, uh, I just wanted to point that out. It's all forgotten today. And then I, yeah. what I do is I, in this book is I, is I try to trace these, um, these warring tendencies, populism and anti-populism as they, as they reappear over the decades. And so the 1930s is the next period. Uh, that I talk about when, of course, you have the Great Depression, uh, you have the labor movement, and you have Franklin Roosevelt as president, and you also have this populism in the arts, in, you know, in popular culture and in, in the high art of the period. You know, I'm thinking of people like Thomas Hart Benton, uh, Grant Wood, Frank Capra, of course, Orson Welles. I was watching The Magnificent Ambersons last night. You know, and, and it's just, it runs, the, the sort of populist sensibility runs all through that decade. Right. Uh, and I, 
and I, I describe. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's the age of the common man, right? I mean, it's Appalachian Spring. It's Norman Rockwell. It's James Ag. Yes, it's, I it's, love that it, book, by it, the way. Which Ag? Yeah, let us now praise. Yeah, yeah and it's wonderful. Man. I I it's couldn't think book. of a way to do to to do homage to it in the in this book. Um, no, no, it's a wonderful book, and so and also you know Dos Passos USA the the yes. uh, the classic. And and let it let let us not forget Carl Sandburg who wrote the people no. yes yeah and uh, and I, yeah. I sort of flipped his yeah. flipped yeah. his title but uh, the grapes of wrath of course yeah yeah I yeah. I love the ending of that they they um, they're riding along in their in their sad pickup truck looking for you know uh, sort of agricultural work you know picking uh, oranges or something like that and 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 Ma Jode says to Pa Jode um, you know we're the uh, we're the people we keep on a coming and it's just the most uh, beautiful evocation of all these all these themes of the 1930s but then what fascinated me was the people who hated this kind of 30s populism, which again manifests uh, politically in the Republican Party. But it's not just political. There's a lot of literature as well. Oswald Spengler was writing at this time. Uh, who's the book? The Revolt of the Masses. That's um, you oh, guys said. a Spanish guy. Yeah, that's Ortega, right. Ortega, you guys said, right? Yeah. And uh, there, there's a, there's at the same time as you have this in our country, this wonderful flowering of democracy and of faith in the common man. You have in other countries a, a great disillusionment with democracy, and you know people turning away from it and tur- turning towards things like fascism. You know, in in uh, Germany yeah, and Italy yes, and Spain. Yes, yeah, yeah. but also in this country, the opposition. Yes, uh, the New Deal by the American business class and by the American uh, mainstream media. I mean, is 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 just as for, as it was in the eighteen nineties, and yes. as it is and now. Again, they, again, yes, again, they come together in yeah. this overwhelming, overpowering uh, upper class unity. Uh, of uh, and uh, a lot of this is going to be familiar to you because you know you know the stories I'm telling here. But the the newspapers uh, come together with the uh, the sort of tycoons of the period, uh, the academics, the sort of respected orthodox economists, the uh, leaders of the uh, of, of the legal profession, the great legal minds of the 1930s. All of them come together in 1936 to demand that the the you know that that Roosevelt be defeated and that the New Deal be overturned. And the, the sort of bulwark of this movement was a group called the American Liberty League. It was set up by the DuPont family, um, who were uh, particularly disturbed uh, by, by the New Deal. And again, they had all kinds of money. You know, they had, they had, according to one account that I read, they had more money than the Republican Party that year. They were able, they spent, yeah. they spent lavishly and they would do these, um, Coast to coast radio hookups. Uh, they would sponsor speakers. Uh, they did again, just like Mark Hanna had done in the 1890s, this blizzard of pamphlets. And uh, what, uh, again, not a lot of people have have uh, not a lot of historians have delved into those pamphlets and have have looked at the materials actually issued by the. Uh, by the Liberty League in 1936, but I was able to do it. I mean, th- again, uh, the internet makes all of these things so much easier. I don't have to travel to a, a library far away. I was able to read them and th- they are absolutely astonishing. It's because it's not just that they hate Roosevelt. 
And they think of Roosevelt as a, 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 you know, in the same way that they described Brian, this kind of um, upheaval of the unfit. It's that they hate democracy itself. Yeah, it, look, it, I mean, all of this is part of the age-old uh, war between uh, rich and poor. Yes. I mean, that's where it all goes. It's all variation on that theme. I mean, it, it, it's the, uh, you know, wealth. Brandeis says to, to Roosevelt, we can have democracy or we, we can have concentrated wealth in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. The, the, exactly. Uh, I mean, I mean, this goes back to democracy as the Greeks understood it. The yeah. power of wealth and the rich at war with the power of the of the of the poor, which is numbers, many. Exactly. And there's there's again, there's just these um, hilarious episodes. Uh, E.F. Hutton, who was a financier at the time, wrote an article. I was able to find the article. It was in something called Public Utilities Fortnightly, where he said the, the title of the article was Let's Gang Up, meaning uh, let's the business community. Let's get together and defeat the New Deal. Let's let's uh, let's let's sort of form this resistance to Roosevelt. And they did it. Uh, and the, uh, the newspapers of the, we, it, it's well known that the newspapers of America, uh, despised Franklin Roosevelt. What, what you don't realize is the, the sort of texture, the granular, uh, nature of the, you know, exactly the words that they used when they, when they despised and denounced him. And I had a lot of fun researching this, you know, reading the, the Chicago Tribune in 1936, which was, it, it was kind of crazy, Lewis. <laughs> well, <laughs> give me some of the words. What are some okay. Of the so words? they, they, they with the Tribune, uh, they would every single day. Let me see if I can find uh, uh, some of the, some of the quotes. Every single day, the Tribune would have a little notice on the front page that said, "You have X number of days in which to save the American way of life." And this is on the front page of the paper every single day. They would do front page political cartoons that were just vicious in their denunciation of Roosevelt. And they had um, they ran a series of uh, uh, of editorials, all of them, I suppose, written by Colonel McCormick himself. Uh, all of them with the same headline, turn the rascals out, uh, de- right. denouncing Roosevelt in exactly the same terms as they had de- de- as people had denounced William Jennings Bryan in 1896. But the, uh, the cartoons are the best. There's one, and, you, you know, talking about, uh, speaking of Trump, there's one that shows Roosevelt uh, as, a, as a naughty boy, and his hands are covered with, <laughs> As the the caption states, the red jam of Moscow. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's supposed to be a, a, a Russian puppet. Uh, right. And again, they 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 uh, they ran images showing the people as uh, a great beast, which is a sort of recurring theme in the anti-populist literature that that ordinary people are are basically uh, sort of like animals. Uh, that Roosevelt was a dictator in waiting, this kind of thing. But then you go back and actually dig into the the literature that these people published and the, that they were that they were issuing, and the, it was again this this great fear that people who had uh, who were lazy, who had done no work. I mean, this is the middle of the Great Depression, but uh, for a lot of the uh, sort of Liberty League types. 
the, the only problem with the depression was that, they, that the country had been hit with a kind of epidemic of laziness. <laughs> and nobody, yeah, right. nobody wanted to work anymore. And everybody thought they could, they could, uh, they could vote themselves, uh, you know, a piece of the public treasury. They could vote themselves the money of their bosses, you know, out of their bosses pockets. And this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. is, this is totally unacceptable because of course their boss was, you know, had rightfully earned the money. And this was, you know, civilization yeah. had been handed down by God himself. And well, that, you know, I, that, that, that's Reagan on, on welfare Queens, right? Yes, ex- exactly. The same thing. Uh, Reagan was able to pull it off though. In yeah. 1936, this thing crashed and burned, but the, yeah. the funny, the funniest part of it was the eugenics that these yeah. guys rolled out against Roosevelt and against the, uh, the, the sort of populistic sentiment of the day that, uh, you know, that the reason people were where they were in society was because of, of the genes that they'd been born with. And there was, you couldn't tamper with this. You couldn't fiddle with this. You couldn't fix it by legislative fiat, you know, by changing the social system, by letting people have labor unions. People are where they are because of, and here's one of these quotes, because of the hereditary weakness of their organs and their minds. The weak right. should not be artificially maintained in wealth and power. It, it, it was, um, I did not realize how much of the American elite at the time really believed in uh, eugenics and they believed yeah. in, they believed in controlling who married whom and uh, how many children they had. You know, there's a, another fear that uh, sort of ugly fear of the elite that you hear uh, uh, from time to time is this, this, uh, this fear that the, uh, the rich are going to be outbred by the poor. You know, we need the poor to do the work, right? We have to have a certain amount of them because somebody's got to, you know, uh, turn the crank in the factory and make, you know, make the stuff and make my share price go up. But we can't have too many of them because they'll be able to, uh, to, you know, to outvote us. And so there's this, there's this real dilemma that these people have. And they talked about this openly in 1936. And I just want to say here, Lewis, this is not how you win an election. No, no, no. This was a this was an incredible disaster, you know. Yeah. And and the Republican candidate, who was again a sort of well-meaning cipher, uh, Alf Landon was his name. Uh, but this time, instead of winning like McKinley had, he went down to one of the worst defeats of all time. I mean, it was this landslide. Roosevelt uh, uh, won every state except for Maine and Vermont. You know, it's this crushing defeat. And uh, uh, <laughs> afterwards, there they you know after the dust had settled, uh, these uh, the, you know these 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 people on top looked around and like what did we do wrong? And they they couldn't figure it out. And it, here's one of the fascinating things that they came up with after you know looking back at the, this this election of 1936, this you know. Uh, epical, uh, transformative election where the the New Deal is completely uh, uh, confirmed uh, by the American public. You know, there's this huge yeah. uh, bill of support for Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, and they're like, "What did we do wrong?" And one of the uh, one of the studies that somebody did at the time pointed out that in cities where you had like many newspapers and every single one of them was against Roosevelt, that's where Roosevelt ran up his highest totals. <laughs> was in places where the media was totally against him. And so in a sense, it was not just that people were voting for Roosevelt. They were voting against the news media of the time. 
I think they're doing the same thing. They did the same thing with Trump. and They, they certainly did. Isn't it yeah. funny that this is a lesson that nobody learned, or maybe somebody yeah. learned in 1936, but has been completely forgotten. And by the way, you can't tell people that today. They don't understand it. You know, I live here in Washington, Lewis, and I open up the Washington Post, and there's every day five op-eds denouncing Trump. And look, I didn't, I didn't vote for Trump and I think Trump is a fool and, and, and has bad taste to boot, but five op-eds denouncing him and there's no subtlety to it. There's no. no, there's no cleverness to it. No, there's no, there's no, there's no like calculation. Like maybe no. he's, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's doing something right or he's saying something right, but he's doing it in the wrong way, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe if we outflank him, there's never any cleverness or subtlety. Uh, to it at all. It's always just no. the direct frontal assault. Denounce him, denounce his supporters, anybody, you know, the most strident, moral, moralistic opposition to this guy. And, and, and that's what they choose. That's what they do. And they, they have no sense that they are shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, you know, it's, no, no. <laughs> no, they don't. They History, don't. Uh, you know, and, and, well, anyhow, I'm I'm hoping right. that, I'm hoping that some of them read this book, but I'm not. I, I, all right, well, no, I'm look, not counting on it. <laughs> all right, but look, it's a fine, fine book, Tom. And the uh, end by saying what you the way you end your book uh, about the the, the oh, question. But, but we didn't, Lewis. We skipped a big part here. The the the, the, the uh, a really important part, and a part that you I think is close to your heart, which is where the term gets flipped. And it's this generation of scholars in the 1950s. It's this generation of intellectuals. They called themselves the consensus intellectuals. And they took all of this stuff, all this denunciation of Brian and this denunciation of Roosevelt, and they made it into liberalism. And this is a, a sort of fascinating inflection point. And they decided that, uh, you know, uh, you don't want mass movements of ordinary people. These are liberals now. Richard Hofstadter, yep. Daniel Bell, uh, Seymour Lipset, a, a whole bunch of others. These are consensus generation of liberals. They've come to power in the academy. They've come to power in government, uh, uh, basically across society coming up in the 1950s. It's the great age of the managerial uh, class. And they say, you don't want mass movements of working people. You don't want mass democracy. That's not how you get reform. The way you get reform is through people like us sitting around a big table in Washington and coming to consensus with one another. And they decided that working class movements, movements, working class is the wrong term, mass democratic movements, that there was something pathological about these things. Right. And the word that they used to describe the pathology of mass movements of ordinary people was, you guessed it populism right and they invented a new definition for this word uh basically they they had some grounding for it hofstadter had some grounding for it in his study of populism but it it it, in fact bore almost no resemblance to the real historical populist movement they just flipped the word because they felt like flipping the word and uh used it to describe the thing that they were displacing they were displacing mass movements of ordinary people and replacing it with they themselves, with the managerial elite. And the funny thing is, Lewis, we've never looked back from then. I mean, we've had ups and downs. We had this moment in the 60s where there, there appeared to be mass movements of ordinary people coming up again, but it didn't last very long. 
And the Democratic Party today is absolutely and completely given over to the idea of managerial expertise. You know, that, that's yeah. what that's what it's all about. Uh, there is no such thing as elite failure. I mean, there can be no such thing as elite failure. That's not even worth looking into. The only real problem out there is when people reject uh, the advice of managerial elites. And you've, you've got this uh, incredible situation where the, the, all this anti-populist tradition that you and I have been talking about gets picked up by the uh, liberal faction in American life, by the Democratic Party and by the liberal pundit bureau here in Washington, D.C. And it's now their house ideology, this thing that, that is descended more or less directly from the far right well, far right is not the right word, but you know what I mean. From 1896, yeah, yeah. from the tycoons and the newspaper barons and et cetera, the yeah. railroad barons, that's now the uh, common sense of the liberal elite here in Washington. And that's, right. the, that's the story of the book. That's the crazy story of the book. And the question that you mentioned is what gets left out. That's what we never get to ask anymore, which is for whom does America exist? You know, does it, does it exist for them? For this managerial elite, you know, who just they, they get to they you know go to these fancy Ivy League schools and they get to figure everything out, and we are just items for them to study. Or does it exist for this sort of uh, Koch brothers elite, you know, the elite that 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 own the uh, manufacturing such as it is of this country, and we work for them, and they bid our wages down a little more every year, but we keep turning that crank and we keep driving their share price higher, or you know, they they study us and our consuming habits on Amazon.com or whatever it is. Does it exist for them, or does it exist for us? And it's a uh, you know the you know my answer to that <laughs> yeah. to that question. But what I love about that question is that it comes to us from 1936 from a great book by a guy called Gilbert Seldes, who I bet you remember in the 19, from the from the 50s and 60s. He used to be a, a a mass culture critic. He used to write about TV and jazz music and stuff like that. But before that, he was kind of a populist himself in the 1930s. And he wrote a really fascinating book about the populist feeling of the 1930s called Mainland. Nobody remembers this anymore. I don't even remember how I got hooked up with it. I guess I found it in the library one day, but I love that. I love that question. And yeah, that's, that's how the book ends. Who, who is this country for? What is this democracy for? Tom, Tom Frank, thank you for speaking with us today about your new forthright an illuminating book, The People Know. Lewis, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.